0: Welcome to Theory for Turntables, the TFT podcast. I'm Matt, and that is not Ryan. It's Jordan. Jordan, bow down before the one you serve. You're going to get what you deserve.
1: Why am I seething with
0: this animosity? I think you owe me a great big apology. <laughs> well, I'll give it preemptively. I'm very sorry, uh, Jordan, that we... Uh, that we. Uh, <laughs> No, <laughs> that 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 I'm not Ryan. <laughs> I'm sorry that uh that I'm going to drag you uh, straight to hell because we're doing 9-inch nails pretty hate machine the seminal 1989 album that introduced Trent Reznor and uh his his band alter ego his artistic project uh his um his, you know, uh, global industrial agenda, Nine Inch Nails upon the world. Um, this is a, uh, this is an interesting, this is an interesting record. It's their, I mean, it's their first record and kind of what, what it is generically, uh, is, is kind of an open question. And I think it's something that we are going to want to, uh, I think it's something that we're going to want to talk about, but I, I kind of found it pleasant to listen to honestly over the last couple of days or, at least kind of uh really engaging and compelling in in places i don't know about you how did you find it
1: well you say that you're dragging me into this but i think that i was the one who actually suggested this for the agenda like uh sending sending an email to ryan uh a few months back or something because this music used to be my jam like Solidly, solidly, my jam. Um, I know that that's not exactly how I present to the world most of the time these days, but I was excited that these years were rolling around and these albums with them.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely um, this is nineteen eighty nine, which we've already sort of demonstrated was a bumper crop, and and, you know we don't like to call our shot because like very often we uh, very often we you know um, make changes at the last minute, but uh, we're we're aiming to get to Nineteen ninety-one in this historical stretch, and nineteen ninety-one was uh, just an incredible year for all kinds of different, uh, all kinds of different music. And you can go, go, uh, go Google nineteen ninety-one in music and see what some of the big albums were. And uh, we're going to get to some of those, and you can get excited about that because I certainly yeah. am
1: rest assured that whichever one you get most uh, excited about we will not touch
0: no our our uh, mission to alienate and confound our listeners hasn't changed not even uh not even a little bit all right so this is a uh this is a, uh somewhere in the 45 to 50 minute range um it's it fits on an lp in other words uh and it it uh is sort of a bracing uh, you know it's sort of a bracing listen it's uh it's just an experience that you're gonna have to have uh so go listen to uh to pretty hate machine put uh this um podcast on pause and listen to it and we will be back ready to talk about it when you get back after this word from our commercial sponsor
1: hey matt. Are you an agricultural economy? Yes. I mean, how did you know? (laughs) Do you find yourself locked in Malthusian cycles of famine, uh, build-up, die-off, famine again? How will I ever break this downward spiral? (laughs) (laughs) Have you considered industry? What? it's this great new thing that uh, that all of the great industrial economies are doing wow
0: hey it's like the 19th century is happening to me right now
1: <laughs> industry for when you want things to be a little bit less
0: pleasant all right we're back uh jordan i have a question
1: i hope that you would <laughs>
0: I was actually debating between two, but considering that the last time, considering what you discussed the last time you were on this podcast, uh, I want to ask you this. This Trent Reznor, uh, with his uh, misanthropy and his deep-seated bitter rage and his, uh, his sort of defiant stance in the face of different kinds of authority, is he a beastie boy?
1: <laughs> Unqualified, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Can you say a little more? <laughs> um I think that the the beastiness is absolutely there uh not just in the sonics of the music which are abrasive and all those things but also in his singing voice especially on this first album which is you know adenoidal and a little bit whiny in just the way that the beastie boys are adenoidal and a little bit whiny sure um and then the boyness is absolutely there in the lyrics um i the question that I was going to ask you, if I had had a chance to do it, is would we be better off with an instrumental version of this album? <laughs> um, because to me, like I said, this used to be music that I cared a very, very great deal about, and I still think it's great, but the part that has aged the least well is the vocals and the lyrics and everything about that, and I,
0: I kind of wish that I had the, the, the all-instrumental version of it, to be honest. Well, yeah, okay, so I want to talk about the instrumental version and, and the way, it, um, the way it, uh, we talk about it. I mean, I think the way you phrase that that... that question is interesting. Would we be better off with with just that? And I'm not sure we would be better off. Um, We would certainly be more comfortable, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. And we would certainly have an aesthetic experience that's a little more enjoyable on, you know, just in in a straightforward way. But I think that there are pleasures to sort of going down the, like, the goth 14-year-old journal poetry of of pretty hate machine, and I think it's sort. There's something sort of beautiful in how unvarnished uh, and how, on a, in a certain way, stupid it is. Right, like the 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 fact that it really doesn't age well like he was 24 when he he uh, wrote and released this album and, uh, and and so is like engaging in a kind of uh, you know is engaging in a kind of like young uh, almost sort of post adolescent uh, uh, self indulgent um, morose moping around but you know who else did that shit Thoreau you know like,
1: <laughs> right
0: yeah. like there's there's a pr- Proud literary tradition of like being an insufferable white guy who you just want to slap in the face and tell to grow the fuck up, you know.
1: Like, in in many ways, that is the proud literary tradition. <laughs> I mean, at least in at least in Anglophone countries, right? Exactly.
0: Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Young Werther had had plenty of sorrows, right? Like you just want to uh, slap the kid anyway. Um, so I think I mean and, and like we can go into it a little bit what uh what we mean uh, uh what we mean by that. So my my other question the one I was I was uh, hesitating on. Um oh wait, I wanted to uh I, I wanted to sort of experiment a little bit with what it would be like if the Beastie Boys recorded uh songs from Pretty Hate uh, pretty hate machine, like, and I, I'd like to hear, like, bow down before the one you serve. Sorve. Sorve. <laughs> right, exactly. With the, like, the, the strong emphasis at the end. You're going to get what you did. Yeah. Um, with slightly more new yorkie accent like the thing i was reminded of most as i was listening to the as you say the adenoidal uh you know the kind of the the nasal braying of trent reznor on this album um i was uh I, I was thinking of Weird Al Yankovic, honestly, who to this day um, sort of sort of does it, and it's like to him, it's a it's a trope of disaffected young manhood a little bit, right? Like the same kind of adolescent impulse to kind of mock and, and scorn. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, kind
0: I'm of like uh, mainstream pop music, right?
1: Yeah. There's like, there's a little bit of a sneer, right? And we don't really generally think of Weird Al as being aggressive, but mockery is sort of aggressive by nature.
0: Yeah. I mean, the fact that Weird Al, I mean, he's so, he he presents as very non-threatening and Trent Reznor wanted to present as very threatening, right? Is, you know, uh, distinguishes them a little bit, but there's actually maybe more in common between Trent Reznor. I mean, like, uh, uh, like weird uh, trent Reznor may be the dark mirror of weird al yankovic
1: right <laughs> <laughs> do you know is there a weird al parody of a trent Reznor song out there in the
0: ether anywhere i forget whether he did nine inch nails but there is one called angry white boy polka which uh i commend to everyone and which i'll put a link to uh in in the show notes um that is the i it parodies some later some later music but definitely like but but definitely like Resner enabled uh industrial rock and and associated hard rock genres um like uh, uh offspring or um i mean they're more punk but but like Marilyn Manson and, st- and stuff like that uh yeah. Um but so the 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 question I was going to ask you had uh, had I got around to it was uh what is the pretty hate machine? Hmm. Is it like is it women in general? <laughs> <laughs> is it one particular woman? And what is the is it their hate or is it that like uh you know the and there's there's a lot of like breakup songs uh or sort of you know um sort of slightly S and M inflected uh you know unhealthy relationship songs, right? Yeah,
1: like, yeah. Although I, for me always Nine Inch Nails was kind of the songs were always about um Hatred of, on the one hand, himself, and that's maybe the strongest current. And then on the other hand, like some romantic partner that did him wrong. And on the third hand, capitalism. And then all three of those things are sort of folded all around, so they're all metaphors for each other. Uh, so that like um, when 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 he's saying, "I'd rather die than give you control," that's explicitly about capitalism, right? God, money uh, is is the 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 refrain there. And yet, when he's saying, "I'd rather die than give you control," it sort of feels like he's talking to an
0: ex-girlfriend, right? Um, definitely. In the same way that uh, on Fleetwood Mac's "Rumors," everything can be read as being about like the breakup of a marriage or about cocaine, <laughs> and they're yeah, both yeah. they're the same. They're they're like uh, they're. You know, it's their really it's, uh, it's and or cocaine. Yeah. right? So what? <laughs> right. Exactly. So what is the I mean, what is the prettiness of the uh, of the pretty hate machine? Because I think that's a I, It's an interesting word to me in a band who's uh, in a, uh, an album um, whose aesthetics are uh, so markedly unpretty and so so determined to be unpretty.
1: Hmm. Well, actually, so we're going to loop back to that later on when we talk about the Sonics. Um, I, what I want to read into this is the cover art, which is a close-up of a microphone, right? Yeah. Um, and there, like, that looks like a machine cause it's because uh, it's you know. R- Chrome, and it looks pretty because it's sort of a beautiful architectural form, and also it's chrome. So the hate then is the thing that's kind of missing from that. Maybe the pretty hate machine is the music itself,
0: is the other thing that you could think of it as. Uh That's, uh, I mean, that is sort of, uh, that's interesting. I mean, and the, the sort of the microphone or sort of music, music making equipment. I mean, we've talked about sort of metaphors for, um, especially when we talked about like going all the way back to, to krautrock and to Bowie, um, and, uh, talking about Depeche Mode and talking about, uh, a different kind of electronic or industrial musics. Um, Talked about, like, how, how the kind of the music making process, the sort of computer or technologically enabled music making process is allegorized, uh, and kind of made an explicit topic of some of the, some of the, um, uh, Some of the lyrics or some of the kind of the artistic project of the songs. It's interesting that it would be a microphone, right? And that, like, when Nine Inch Nails performs, I think there's usually a backing band, and Trent Reznor is a front man rather than being like a sequencer programmer, right? Or uh, you know, I don't know what whatever else he is. Like, he's yeah probably the main instrumentalist. He he uh, is the songwriter, and so like the Pretty Hate Machine is not like the eight oh eight drum machine. it's you know it's uh, it's the microphone um, I, g- I guess because the it it is what enables the the um, it, what enables you to get up get down with the sickness open up your hate and let it flow into me
1: exactly exactly it's it's uh, on the order of the Woody Guthrie guitar that says this machine kills fascists right like a guitar a, a <laughs> this guitar machine kills a- relationships. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this this machine spews pretty hate. Um, like, a guitar is a machine in that it's a, a technological item, right, um, that lets you do certain things, but it's not industrial in the way that we typically think of machines as industrial. And then uh, the machine for Reznor is the microphone, which is connected to the most organic sounding part of his musical product, which is that voice,
0: again, you know, uh, love it or leave it, it is that voice. Right. Um... I, yeah, all musical instruments are machines, right? And this is a this is a thing, this is where it becomes kind of a false dichotomy to talk about like electronic mu- music being inherently more mechanical than previous acoustic music, right? And I suppose that uh, that you know, originally like guitars weren't um industrial uh uh, industrial machines but that 's because there was no industry right like when there was industry like the the Beatles were enabled by uh, the industrial production of cheap guitars right and uh, i mean rock and roll generally was was enabled by the by getting guitars into um, into people 's houses and kind of making them an everyday item rather than being a kind of museum piece uh, or a kind of like uh, a kind of art music only um, sort of thing. I mean, same with pianos. You know, uh, back in the day when when cheap pianos became um, became possible, I guess. Sure,
1: the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like, there, and there was a huge piano industry in uh, in New York City. Actually, you can still go to like the old piano district, and there are factories where you can look and see, uh you know, streets lined with piano factories. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about like machines. A, a a grand piano has something like more than ten thousand moving parts. I think. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, if that's, that's not a machine, I'd like to know what
0: is. Well, right. It's, I mean, pianos are totally interesting because they, like, uh, there's a case, there's a soundboard, and then there's the strings, and that's all stationary and pretty simple to conceive of. And then there's the action of the piano, and that is a, like, fascinating, uh, like, old-style mechanical, mechanical device, right, with no... Um, With no anyway, like I've seen the action taken out of uh, of a piano, and it is it is like uh, amazing to amazing to behold.
1: Yeah, it looks like it looks more like a Rube Goldberg machine than like an actual machine. Like if somebody came in and showed you that and said like I'm going to make this thing, it's going to be a piano, you'd be like that is way too complicated to work.
0: You need a harp. That's we're going to stick with a harp, (laughs) right? Yeah, or yeah, or the lute because it has fewer strings and it's slightly uh, slightly easier to understand. I mean, is there a non mechanical a non machine musical instrument? I mean, maybe certain kinds of percussion. Maybe when you're just banging wood against wood.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're like, or if you're just like... Uh, Snacking on naturally occurring objects. Uh, if you if you slap the water as beavers do, that might be considered a a non mechanical,
0: not uh, non non mechanistic musical instrument. Sure, or like clapping or certain kinds of body percussion or vocal percussion, I guess, and you know, and and things like this. And if the sort of origin of of if there's kind of an origin of folk song in in oh.
1: This uh, this puts me in mind of the question the uh, the dickish question I was actually going to ask you but finish your thoughts sorry
0: uh, if if you sort of uh, subscribe to the kind of um, probably apocryphal uh, folk anthropology of music kind of originating in shared work and being a kind of a tool for collective action and social organization um, you know to kind of move together on beat. To to do things that would not be possible for individuals to do, then the idea of sort of uh, the original the original drum is the ground that you stamp your feet against, uh, right? And that's the kind of the er, that's the kind the earth itself is the er musical instrument that we uh, you know that we we sort of replicate in in lesser and lesser fidelity but greater and greater complexity.
1: Yeah. So this is interesting. If we're thinking of Trent Reznor's music as industrial music. Industrial as opposed to what? In the commercial, I said it was industrial as opposed to agricultural. Interesting. But, but you could also think of like industrial as opposed to commercial, industrial as opposed to residential, right? Um, <laughs> industrial as opposed to like cottage industry that's piecework and artisanal. Yeah,
0: right. Industrial as, as opposed to artisanal, right. Yes excuse me, artisanal <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and I mean, I think that 's supposed to be well it's it 's supposed to be industrial as opposed to uh yeah bucolic or suburban right that that like this is the music, this is the music of the of the cities, right, of the sort of um disaffa- of the kind of the newly inner cities post uh, you know post the kind of the suburb, the great suburban exodus of of the Reagan years
1: yeah like uh, the the hollowed out destroyed inner cities
0: Yeah. Right? Where, the, there's like there's not really anything there anymore it's all empty warehouses right our our sort of reference for this Ryan and I when we talk is is sort of my description of the latter seasons of Mad Men as the long slow decline into the warriors right from new york city as a place of sort of cosmopolitan possibility uh whether you know whether sort of morally good or bad it's you know it's where um, all kinds of good things and all kinds of like social mobility and whatnot can happen it's also where all of Don's affairs happen and like there's sort of flip sides of the same coin um, but it's but it's exciting it's uh, democratic it's available it's largely safe um, to the long slow decline to the Warriors right where uh, where the city is a place of, of threat and you know you you dare not ride the subway and everything is vandalized and mm-hmm. uh, it's very you know um, it's just very Uh, hard to get, you know, it's very hard to sort of make a, uh, make a life there. That's the, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's sort of, um, uh, and, and like, so the kind of bombed out warehouse districts, right. Are are where the, uh, are where, where I think of as, as being like this. And the, the idea that this is there, I mean, there are two, there are two things, right? Like one, one, it's fertile space because artists can move there and it's cheap and it's, you know, it's available and there's a lot of it. There's a lot of material and no one values it all that highly. So you can kind of use city like Kleenex, uh, like there's disposable city.
1: Yeah, yeah, if if somebody pukes on the side of the stage, you'll just like go down the street to another
0: warehouse next week. <laughs> right. You can yeah, exactly. You have consumable warehouses, but um uh, uh you know, but also um but then there's also a sense in which, like, well, this is this is my experience, right? Like this this sort of bombed out urban uh, sort of in the, in the remote like in that photograph, that uh, famous photograph of on the Ramones first uh, album cover. Um, like, this is the city; it's kind of broken down. But but you know, there are many like this is my city. There are many like it, but this one's mine. Uh, and it's it's crappy and it's broken down. And we're a, a sort of lost, forgotten generation. And uh, but you know what? I- I demand that we be represented, right? And there's this other, you know, I, I demand that my experience be represented. And there's this other, there's this other trend, right? Um, sort of countervailing the kind of like let a thousand flowers bloom, like artistic Renaissance, because it's, it's very cheap, um, and available. Uh, the, um, this countervailing trend of sort of uh, an insistence on on uh, an insistence on being heard, which is sort of which is very punk i mean patty yeah. Smith, uh, Patty Smith and other people have said recently kind of in posts in not in posts but in in venues that are then posted about on the internet that are shared a lot on social media that you should not go to um, you should not go to New York City anymore, right? Like, that was it for their time, you know? And that, like, uh, uh, you should go somewhere else. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know if it's really a city. I don't know if it's online. It, it's interesting to think about what the next, you know, where, where where the next artistic movements are going to come from, where you can get the critical mass of creative people to do, uh, to do this kind of work, where they can, you know, live cheap and, and not worry too much about uh, even their kind of low standard of low standard of living. Um, but, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, participating in a scene and and going to warehouse Mm. concerts or, I mean, It's
1: interesting because the, uh, the criteria that you put forward are essentially the same criteria that like, um, plastic tchotchke manufacturers look for, for putting their actual industry, right? Places where you don't have to pay the people a lot and their standard of living is bad, but what do they expect? Because it's the third world.
0: Yeah, it's where uh, or sure, I guess, or like where Amazon puts their warehouses, right? Sure. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe it's going to come out of the warehouse. Maybe there's like an underground arts movement uh coming out of the kind of the the demoralizing wage slavery of the Amazon warehouse uh that um, you know, will will get us all uh, that will sort of surprise us with, with uh, new and path musical works.
1: One last uh, riff on this. If you look at the, the visual iconography of Nine Inch Nails in general, and actually of just industrial music writ large, the gleaming chrome of Pretty Hate Machine is a big outlier. The dominant color palette is rust you know it's it's not happy metal it's metal that has been neglected in a hazardous environment for far too long and that even shows up in the sonics a little bit if you think about the way in which say Kraftwerk sounds mechanical or like a machine Nine Inch Nails is sort of what you would get if you left that machine out in the rain um, when Kraftwerk's first album comes out and then wait until Nine Inch Nails' first album comes out you know like it's it's all distressed metal uh, an actual factory that sounded like that would not be a factory for very much longer
0: now now that now that aesthetic, like people pay a lot of money to go to restaurants that look like that, right? And like with <laughs> <laughs> with un- bare Edison bulbs hanging from the ceiling, you know, and sort of uh, uh, very highly distressed wood uh, bars and and slab tables and things like this.
1: Yeah, yeah. All of the all of the cocktails are are like named after Nine Inch Nails songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like
0: uh, I like two head like a holes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like because they all sound like like a hangover right like right I'd, right I'd like right. two head like a holes one terrible lie and as something i can never have
1: yeah yeah and then uh and as an amused bouche we'll get the march of the pigs which is like bacon three ways on uh on melba toast <laughs>
0: So, uh what do you want to say about the about the sonics um a little bit at a at a high level before we drill down into before our industrial drill press uh you know moves us down into the individual songs
1: yeah, so I have a grand unified theory of uh, of what 's going on sonically with nine inch nails um, which I I didn't have this when I was listening to them all the way through like late middle school and high school, but I've uh, I've kind of come to it on this re-listen, and I'm very happy to have had the chance. Even if you don't think that this holds up, basically there are four things that are going on in this in this music. There's the vocals. Mm-hmm. There's the propulsive sounds, yeah. which is the stuff that's like the Depeche Mode layer plus the massive drum beats. And uh, I think you had some stuff to say about the way in which they sound like Depeche Mode, which we want to come back to. But uh, I'm borrowing that from you. And then the third is the pretty sounds. And that's like the sort of ambient sounding stuff, which is usually mixed to the background, but every now and then comes to the fore. And then there's the ugly sounds. And that's the actually industrial stuff. The the messed up vocal samples, the drill sounds, the static sounds and whatnot, right? Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Um, And usually these four layers are distinct. Like the the drum beats themselves are not made out of nasty static squeaks. They're recognizably drums. Uh Um, But they're very often uh, parallel, or what you'd call in orchestration classes, doubled. So if you have a propulsive bass line, the same melody is going to be played a few octaves up by a collection of pretty sounds, right? Um, Or a few octaves further up than that by ugly sounds, or the vocals might be singing the same melody or something. Something like that, and having all of those things together usually forms the climax of the song. So in a, in sin, for instance, uh, what sets apart the final chorus is that there's a new layer of ugly sounds that's layered in over everything that was already going on to make
0: the final chorus bigger than the others. Right. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked about about sequencers before, and one easy thing to do is to copy paste the MIDI data onto a new track and play it through a different patch. So uh, you know, you can even pitch it up an octave or <laughs> down an. In- Octave, so sure. that you can kind of you can create uh, you can create drama and tension in the orchestration by by doing this, right?
1: Yeah, although some some of these things are very clearly not done the easy way. Like the the, the sort of the specific sound of the pretty stuff often involves like either. Pure toned synths like sine waves and things like that, or woodwind samples, which are then like messed the hell with. So that like rather than having one line play all of the notes of the melody, each note is assigned to a different uh a different like synth filter, which then has a very, very sculpted like ebb and flow. And all of that data is lost in the version that uh, that's in the baseline that's just going like So it's not as simple as doing copy and paste.
0: Some of the time, yeah, sure, no, yeah, you're right that the that the synth programming and the the kind of the sample manipulation is very sophisticated and was probably done yeah. in this uh, in this very bespoke um, yeah. handmade handmade way.
1: Although uh, I'd say that uh, what you were saying there is also probably relevant because clearly Reznor is like a synth jockey. That's that's where he naturally lives, and like you learn to copy things into lots of different voices up and down uh, as you find your way around a synth. So then, if you're going to do something sophisticated later on, to do a very, very sophisticated version of that kind of doubling is maybe like the natural thing that you would think to do.
0: Sure. I mean, like the, the, when you, when you program synths, there's always like, a, especially for live performance, there's always kind of a labor saving function. So if you can trigger more than one element with a key press, um, Yeah. Why not? Right. Uh, Right. Like exactly. It, it, it's a, it's a sort of labor saving thing, especially when you're, you know, especially when you're on the, on the road and you're, you're trying to save money by hiring fewer, um, by hiring fewer musicians. Hey, the baseline that you just sung, the kind of like, uh, random nine inch nails baseline, which was right. Like, I think that, um, I think that that's, actually worth unpacking a little bit because I think you hit the nail right on the head, and I, I want to like um, I want to uh, talk about a couple features of it i 'll try and sing it with a little more uh, a little more melody, but so like and slower so like three things i want to I want to notice about that one that emphasis is evenly distributed among the um, among the eight or 16, be- eight or 16 pulses in the measure, whether it's like an eighth note or a sixteenth note, uh, sixteenth note groove, it doesn't have the kind of boom, bap, boom, bap, rock and roll backbeat of kind of strong and weak beat, weak beat dichotomy, um, that, mm-hmm. yeah, th- yeah. that you're used to. The other thing is that it's, uh it the it feels shifted off by an eighth note to me. Um that the grace note is falls on the downbeat and the note that you're the the like the the decorative leading tone falls on the downbeat and the note that you're going to, that's actually the root of the chord, is on like one and or one E, right? Like is on the is on a uh uh deemphasized uh beat from the downbeat. So it's do 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 doot and not making the kind of the hammer on the like the the aspect of kind of hammering on to the note uh like foregrounding the kind of foregrounding the dissonance of that of that leading tone by placing it on by placing it in in uh a like a stress position tempo wise even though it's not really stressed in terms of emphasis right
1: yeah a little a little appoggiatura effect
0: right and that's I mean is that i well i don 't know is the is the norm to sort of play those on the upbeats uh, on on like upbeats to uh, to the notes like i um i don 't know it 's been a long time since I actually studied Bach with someone who who knew what they were talking about so uh, but i I seem to remember learning like two part inventions and the the trills and stuff like that would actually precede the would actually precede the strong beat so that like the the harmony rang out in the way that you wanted it to. Um, when the yeah. beat actually came around, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, both are options, but putting the dissonance on the beat is a slightly more
0: hardcore option. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, Johann Sebastian was nothing if not hardcore, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, what do you, do you think that this is, so this is an interesting, this is an interesting question, right? Like, because the one of the n- narratives about Trent Reznor, though he was embraced by the underground music scene, like pretty thoroughly in the early years was that he, he sold out or that he had already, he, he had always already sold out, uh, a little bit. Um, that he's, like, not even real industrial music. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's <laughs> uh, in,
1: industrial you, are music.
0: You, yeah. Are you guys ready for some real industrial music?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, go back to our Austin, Texas episode if you want to uh, get that joke. Um, the... Um, Yeah, exactly. And that like, and one of the early questions Ryan asked on, on the podcast that, that really didn't connect with me until sort of later, um, was when we switched to being a music podcast was which came first, the indie or the pop, right? When you're talking about indie pop music, is it pop music that gets dragged into the indie camp? Or is it indie music that gets some, you know, Brill building song craft and gets, you know, some catchy hooks and things like this, uh, you know, like uh, verse, chorus, bridge, structure, um, that becomes very familiar and satisfying, right? And I think it's an interesting question to ask here. Does this take slightly more alienating industrial music and popify it? Or does this take synth pop, like Depeche Mode or like The Cure or, you know, um, things like that, and add industrial elements that, you know, that then you know, that then give it a kind of, what, an edge of danger and a kind of unique value proposition in in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really,
0: really interesting question. What is your answer to it? I, the latter. Uh, my, my theory <laughs> is that my theory is that it is it is essentially pop music and that the there's kind of a layer of industrial noise there's a kind of like wash you know uh put on it like you filter a photo on ins- on uh on Instagram but to me the the um to me the uh the first thing i hear is the the pop song structures and stuff
1: yeah, and that like the, the if we buy my my theory of the Sonics, the fact that only only at maximum a quarter of it is actually the abrasive machine sound stuff would tend to sort of support this reading that it's basically uh, pop songcraft with a veneer of avant garde noise noise experiments. Uh, rather than the other way around. On the other hand, uh, one of the things that we did when we were sort of pre-gaming for this is I went and Googled around what all the best industrial songs were by people other than Trent Reznor. Because when I say that this was my music, I don't mean industrial music writ large. It was basically like the stuff that played on uh, WPLJ uh, (laughs) in in suburban New York. Was that a New York radio station or
0: was that... Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, And like... That was Nine Inch Nails for sure, but Nine Inch Nails kind of was an honorary member of grunge to a certain degree like it's it's right around the same time as alternative rock was becoming a really big thing and uh nine inch nails was just like one of those aggressive bands that they played so i remember being very surprised when i learned i think i think this might have been as late as college because this is back before the internet was really a thing and i was not a terribly savvy uh, music consumer when i learned that nine inch nails was basically just the trent Reznor show and i learned that quite late kind of after i had stopped uh listening to the music all the time, I thought of them as a band, and I didn't really think about uh, how the music got made. I, I assumed that they had, like, you know, a power trio plus a guy that was up there breaking glass in the back or
0: something for all those sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and definitely that was the MTV experience too, and in LA, the the big station was K-Rock, right? Like, that that this kind of music was ascendant alongside Pearl Jam Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, you know, and other, and, and- And other things and it shares it shared with those a certain kind of self-lacerating confessional style of of songwriting though i think nine inch nails takes it to another level but did not share with them the kind of like the guitar the kind of the riff rock uh you know guitar centric um uh, uh, the, the guitar centric sound, but it definitely, I mean, it was in the MTV Buzzbin, uh, right. Like I watched the the music video to closer as a teenager over, uh, over and over and over again. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, just sort of, uh, uh, sitting in front of the, uh, sitting in front of the cable TV. Did the, did the visuals influence you, uh, at all the, the kind of the music video and MTV programming of it all?
1: You know, I grew up without MTV. So that was something, again, that I came to later. I, by reputation, I knew that Closer had a, had a music video that involved torturing a monkey, I believe. Um, I remember... <laughs> the
0: monkey is humanity, man
1: yeah (laughs) i remember closer as being like the the song that uh if my parents were around i would turn it off when it came on the radio even though i knew it was going to be the clean version where you wouldn't actually hear fuck you like an animal i would just be like i could kind of tell what it's about they can't hear this they can't know that i like this yeah (laughs) Um, um So the fact that the music video was even that much more transgressive aggressive, was something that was definitely exciting to me. But I can't say that I was terribly influenced by the imagery.
0: So what? I mean, what about like what about the lyrics and what about the kind of like fourteen year old journal aspects of it? Um, like, d- does that to you? Does that not? Does that not age well? I mean, I have some thoughts about it. But since it was your jams, I want to to give you first crack at, at talking about it.
1: Yeah, well, you know what? I'll I'll flash us back to um, one of my first appearances on this show uh, when we when we just to be dicks decided to talk about uh, the the Schumann Heine Collabo Dichterliebe, um, where. Um, Heinrich Heine, in his introduction to his own poetry, says, you know, these poems have their place, and that is in a diary written by a very young hand where the pages are damp with tears and there are flowers and locks of hair pressed between the pages that, I, or something I mean, like that. Yeah,
0: you can just imagine the, like, the Evanescence cover or the, the, like, you know, the sort of maybe Nine Inch Nails cover, right? Like, Im wound, der so not more, not mine! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Or the Beastie like the the, Boys. And wuner shonat monat mai!
1: Yeah, exactly that. Exactly. I feel like the particular version of, like, um, performative mopiness is slightly different. But the notion that performative mopiness has a place and it is, like... Late middle school, early high school, I think is maybe kind of constant. So I look at these and I kind of it it feels nostalgic to me now. I'm like, ah yeah, I remember. I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling like that was really, really profound poetry. I remember thinking that everybody out there who got like a job was bowing down before the god of money, you know, and uh (laughs) was wasn't that a pleasant thing to have been that naive. Well i mean not that not that they're not, it's just that it's necessary.
0: there's there's a certain like uh, you know and i can sort of i can say this because i've i've gone through a difficult breakup recently like there there's a sense in which the experience of pain like even bad relationship pain sort of changes and it's not exactly that it dulls uh or it blunts but it becomes a little more worldly it becomes a little uh a little less um Uh, I don't, I don't totally know, know how to put it. I, you know, I had a friend once described to me the Counting Crows song, uh, Anna Begins, which is very hashtag basic, but I still like it. Shut up. Um, as like, as having this, this sense of like, this is it, this relationship is it. It, right? And, and like the sense that like you, your identity, the universe, society, like the, the, just the great, you know, the, the, the Aristotelian music of the spheres, like that everything kind of added up into this in, you know, in this kind of thing, like, um, it sort of leaves you in, in adult life as, as it should. And so in this context, like I have actually kind of enjoyed, uh, uh, enjoyed going back to this and enjoyed a kind of a non-inflected, a kind of a, a much less mature, uh, a much less, um, in certain ways much more self conscious in that it's much more self involved but in certain ways much less self conscious because it 's not moderated by any kind of life experience uh sort of rage and sort of sort of expressions of 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 sorrow and pain and that like it's been uh you know i don 't know it's been uh it, it it was it is sort of interesting and that's why I say i think there's something there's something um Uh, valuable about it like to to remember i mean even even humbling a little bit to remember that we once all were the you know we once all were the young person with dark circles under their eyes you know rending our garments and and crying over the pages of that diary into which we had uh, you know uh you know between whose pages we had inserted locks of hair and and uh flat flowers and things like this
1: sure sure and that like that uh that maybe if we got over
0: that right <laughs> that this too might pass or something like that <laughs> yeah a little bit right <laughs> um well uh so which of your gems do you want to uh which your jams do you want to go into first does anything uh in particular uh stand out to you as a place as an obvious entry entry place for this uh for uh close readings
1: um hmm uh, so
0: there's one song that
1: I uh, I bothered to sort of talk about the songcraft of because yeah. I do think that the songcraft is is like is pretty remarkable. Trent Reznor is quite good at this stuff. Um which is uh that's what I get. Um so that's what I get is one that is in it's like a a pretty standard like hybrid of verse-chorus form and A-A-B-A form. So the quick music theory lesson here is that most pop songs are either verse-chorus, verse-chorus, verse-chorus forever, or you get verse, then verse again, then a bridge, which is a contrasting section that's not a chorus, Mm -hmm. and then back to the verse. And Mm -hmm. that's A-A-B-A. And then there's a very common hybrid that you get where you get verse-chorus, verse-chorus, bridge, verse-chorus. So it's like A-B-A-B-C-A-B, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or very often A-B-A-B-C-B, and you skip the last verse and go right, to the chorus, because that's the fist-pumping part. Yeah. Um, And this is a song that's like that, uh, but... the the stuff I was talking about before with the sonics maps onto that very directly. So, like, the verse is very pretty but not at all propulsive. The chorus is propulsive but all the pretty sounds go away. Uh Um, What's interesting is that rather than just having one bridge, it kind of has two back-to-back. So, rather than the standard form, which is A-B-A-B-C-B, you kind of get A-B-A-B-C-D-B. And the first bridge, which you could kind of think of as, like, the normal bridge because it sounds a little bit more like a normal bridge, has vocals and propulsive sounds and nothing pretty, the second bridge, which you could think of as like the special effect bridge or the bonus bridge or something like that, the vocals go away. Everything goes away except for prettiness. It's pure prettiness um, for like, you know, 30 seconds of music. And then when the final chorus comes back in and the chorus has all the time just been propulsive without anything pretty, now the pretty instrumental texture from that bonus bridge is layered on top of it. So you get this like uh, this accumulative climax at the end of the song. The thing that's interesting about this, right, is that in addition to the The standard pop song craft of this like this altered uh hybrid musical form with the, the verse and the bridge and the this and the that. There's another kind of form that would emerge if you were only able to pay attention to those sonic, uh, sonic families. So like if you were tone deaf and couldn't hear pitch, if you couldn't really process rhythm, you didn't speak English, but somehow you still had a really sensitive attunement to the sonic profile of various sounds, then you would see patterns on the order of just like pretty propulsive, pretty propulsive, both or something like that. And in this case, the songwriting form and that Sonic form, like they don't quite line up with each other. Uh, rather, they kind of are overlaid on top of each other, such that the climax of both falls at the same place. Mm. Um, and this is this is kind of true of pop song arrangements in general. Like the textbook case that uh, that comes up is Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay, where if you listen to that, like every time the chorus comes around, the texture is actually richer and richer and richer, so that the song as a whole builds to a climax. But something about Nine Inch Like, underlines this, I feel like. Um, First, because Trent Reznor is just, he's really good at it, but also because he has no sense of proportion. <laughs> like he's more than willing to let the the arrangement squash the song structure because he's kind of more interested in these like weird sonic things. Whereas uh, the Otis Redding case, it's all there to sort of support the vocals and make them uh, make them better. Very often, listening to Nine Inch Nails, you'll find that some little noodly bit of synth business has suddenly like taken over the song, um, and that can be like for me that was a real moment where I lost myself in the music. Uh-huh. I would find myself like dancing or pounding my head or whatever, um, pounding my head, nodding my head, <laughs> usually not, usually not into a wall. <laughs> banging, banging your head, head <laughs> <Yeah>. banging. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, like, because something that had been musically trivial had suddenly become massive in that way. And like the, 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 the closing section of, um, of that song is, of, of, of that's what I get is one of
0: those moments for me that like, that really landed uh, so I I have a uh, the interesting one interesting avenue to kind of go down with with what you've said is like what the compositional technique must have been right like because the parts must have been conceived of together and then ripped apart to create the the gradual building towards the towards the climax right and that that like because they were sort of married to each other um, you know I wrote musical theater music when I was a teenager and um, one of the things one of the great tricks in musical theater um happens uh, well it happens all over um it's not worth uh it i mean I, I guess like the canonical example is probably in uh in west Side story, but where um characters will sing their own themes and they sound musically distinct, but then they sing them all on top of each other and it turns out that the harmony works out so that they all they all fit together right yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's this way of uh it's this way of um build of building to a climax uh and and sort of highlight, also kind of highlighting thematic similarities among uh, d- among different kind of lyrical strains and storylines and things like this and i used to write these uh on three lines of staff all at once Right. Um, I mean, not not all at once, but you know. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> holding one pencil between my teeth. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, I, right. Yeah. As as uh, da Vinci is said to have written in two directions with two pencils held in his two hands. Um, the no, but but compose them on the same lines of staff paper, not write three separate melodies that were distinct and, and hope they layered. But these things are like painstakingly constructed to to fit together, and they're conceived of uh, they're conceived of as a unit. And I wonder if some sense of the satisfaction that you feel is that like the, the different parts have been kind of pulled away from their, the different parts have been kind of pulled away from their mates, right? And when they're kind of remarried together, there's this kind of inevitable, there's this kind of uh, compelling, satisfying inevitability uh, to it that makes it, you know, that makes, that makes your head want to bang.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting because it means, like, in order to get that effect, which I think is a great effect, you know, whether it's, in, uh, whether it's in West Side Story or the South Park musical or in a Nine Inch Nails song or in the stuff that you were writing in high school, I'm sure, is that it requires you as a composer to, at certain points, not be making the very best music that you can. Right. Right? Like, you have to give people the less good version so that they can then be surprised by the good version when it comes, which I just think is, like, it's an interesting... Um, and oddly, uh, mature considering Nine Inch Nails as general, like, uh, we've been talking about their immaturity in a lot of ways, right? Or his, his immaturity lyrically. Um, that, like, it's it's actually a very worldly-wise kind of thing to be like, all right, we've got to hold this back, keep it in reserve for right at the point that we want people to, to absolutely lose their
0: mind. It is, yeah. I mean, it is this, this uh, because it involves trade-offs, right? And I feel like embracing trade-offs is a mark of maturity, you know? And, and realizing that, like, I don't know, stability versus... Versus excitement that like you're going to come down at a point uh, on that continuum um, and sort of accepting that you can't you can't have everything that's valuable. You can have some things that are valuable and uh, and not other things. Um,
1: (laughs) You know who else loves trade offs? Moloch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Moloch whose blood is running money. Moloch (laughs) whose whose heart is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch whose fingers are 10. Tenor. Hey, I was a teenager. I committed large portions of Howell to memory. <laughs> sure, sure. I, and I and I mean it's it's interesting like to note that Howell, by the way, uh precedes um uh had like uh the, the uh had like a whole critique of capitalism by like 40 years. And man, that shit is as relevant as it ever was. And if anything more so uh uh more so today. It's I think it's it's um oh i think it's part two of uh of howl and i i commend it to anyone we'll put it we'll put it in the show notes with all the other links and stuff like that
1: so that's a question for you how do you think that nine inch nails has aged what do you what do you think about uh this for our time as opposed to for all time or for its own particular time well i think that the the nails
0: are still nine inches but they're a little droopier now
1: <laughs> they don't they don't hammer quite as straight as they used to like uh, you know, they, uh they got pills for that <laughs>
0: I, got, I got oh I was thinking like the old man's back as you know as he trudges along on three on three legs the the you know uh in the evening um that, well, I mean, they, they, we actually know how they've aged because we, we did a bit of a comparative study, uh, on your suggestion. Uh, I think you listened and I listened also, uh, uh kind of superficially, but, but attentively to, um, to, uh, the recent, uh, the most recent Nine Inch Nails album, which is called Hesitation Marks, uh, or Hesitation Wounds. Um, I think it's Marks. Marks. Okay. Sorry. Hesitation Wounds is the, is the medical term, I guess. Um, and that, uh, uh, and that like, to me, uh, w- what has happened is it got, um, it got a lot synth poppier, mm-hmm. right? Um, like the, the arpeggiator, uh, I listened through to the singles and on the singles, the art, the arpeggiator, uh, 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 came back haunted and copy of, a uh, the arpeggiator is, is like working overtime. um. With that mm-hmm. like slightly plucked kind of synth sounding uh you know um rhythmic arpeggiation of of the the harmonic material from the yeah. from the album um the other one everything uh com- becomes a little more industrial uh but uh, but like it it really uh, there's a kind of poppier slightly more user friendly um uh, sound to me. Also, like, especially in like a copy of a, um, the, the concerns are a little more, are a little more, uh, uh, philosophical rather mm-hmm. than, you know what I mean? Rather than being just a howl, uh, the, a howl against the injustice of it all. Um, yeah. you know, that's actually interesting to say that, uh,
1: that, early nine inch nails is not philosophical. I feel like the, the persona of early Trent Reznor has philosophical concerns, but he doesn't approach them in a philosophical way, right? Like he realizes that, uh, that there are perhaps problems with uh, capital and with organized religion and his uh, his responses to be like, phonies! <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. It, right, exactly. It's not the most thoroughgoing critique that you can imagine, I suppose, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's gotten a little bit, a little bit, like the lyrics are just less embarrassing, I would say, on uh, on New School Nine Inch Nails. And also his voice has just, like, he's gotten older, so it's gotten a little bit uh, more well-rounded, a little bit less of that yeah kind of sound. He,
0: yeah, and he's also singing well even by um down like by the time of closer like by downward spiral he was singing in a lower register right and it it gave a like a slightly more a slightly more seductive and slightly more threatening um character to a lot of the vocal performance that like that is just it, it it's sort of hard to take it's hard to take some of pretty hate machine seriously uh as a like as an expression of rage when it's just so uh it, it's just so adolescent but like yeah okay so, so like, much uh so much i'm doug and your dad yeah right? exactly <laughs> no dad <laughs> i'm trent yeah. Uh, <laughs> i'm out of here i'd rather die than give you control <laughs> oh, well, all right let's talk let's talk a little bit about the critique of capitalism and head like a whole. right like so one of the one of the um uh the uh, tools that's deployed is sort of like buffoon, like buffon clowning um, by, by satirically uh, embodying a representation of this. And like this first, uh, um, This first verse, like, God, money, I'll do anything for you. God, money, just tell me what you want me to. God, money, nail me up against the wall. God, money, don't want everything. He wants it all, right? This is a, this is a, he's talking in the voice. He's talking ironically, right? Like in the voice of, of someone who is, uh... Uh, someone who is, um, uh, uh, dedicated to God money, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Someone... One, one of the sheeple. Right. And to use, to use the technical term. Right. And, and so like, this is a schoolyard, like m- mockery, like making fun in this way, like, uh, like imitating someone in a, in uh in an ironic way, right? Like is a schoolyard taunting. It's a way of schoolyard taunting, right? Like, eh, I'm Trent Reznor. I hate capitalism. Nya, nya. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's uh that's what um that's the kind of the rhetorical tool uh being right being deployed here um the thing that like uh, the thing that struck me when I was listening to this is that taking uh, taken in isolation, you're going to get what you deserve could have either a good or a bad valence, right? Uh, you're going to get what you deserve could mean your hard work is going to be rewarded, right? Or you're going to get what you deserve could mean your nefarious doings, uh, you know, will uh, will get you your comeuppance in the end, even if it doesn't uh, even if it isn't happening, you know, uh, quite as soon as I would like. Right. That's interesting. I think that yeah, you're right, but I can't think honestly of a a case
1: of it ever being used positively.
0: Uh oh really? You don't think like um you don't think like uh uh in in religion, actually, right? Like, isn't isn't that the promise of the Beatitudes? Uh, like, because your reward will be great in heaven. Like, it, isn't that saying like you're gonna get what you uh, what you deserve? Well, no, but I mean, like, the specific
1: language you're going to get what you deserve. I've never heard applied to uh, the meek. Okay. You know, yeah, L- blessed are the meek because they're going to get what they deserve. Doesn't yeah. sound so great. No, it doesn't. Right? Yeah. Um, who, who's the? I can't remember whether it's a whether it's a rapper or or what who has the line the meek ain't gonna. I inherit shit because I'll take it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I forget, but it's a great line. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's true. And actually, even in religion, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll switch my reading on a dime then. Even in religion, like the idea of, it's a, it's a sort of common, uh, it's a common refrain in the Psalms, um, it's a common refla- refrain in a lot of, uh, Judeo-Christian thinking that, like, God is merciful because if God weren't merciful, we'd be screwed, right? Because if we actually, you know, sinful, sinful as we are, uh, as, as we're constituted, if we actually actually got what we deserved. Uh, you know, Lord who could stand. Right. Um, and, uh, you're not going to get what you deserve, I suppose, is the promise of, uh, is the promise of religion to, uh, you know, to a certain, to a certain extent. Um,
1: uh, yeah, you have you have been
0: weighed on the scales and found wanting, right? <laughs> we should probably uh, go into uh, one or two more songs, and it seems like uh, "Sin" is the other like real banger here. Um, and I, and I just want to say that like back in the 90s like when i discovered that fonts were a thing on you know windows 95 or whatever i i definitely downloaded without any sort of license probably illegally from the internet i downloaded a a, a whole font based on the uh Based on the um uh the logo the the uh album cover of the single to sin uh, <laughs> and, and would like type type things in it to be edgy and alternative you know um yeah, because, you know, readability is for squares. <laughs> <laughs> uh it comes down to this. Your kiss, your fist, and your strain, it gets under my skin, within, take in the extent of my sin. Um what do you think uh, uh what do you think sin is uh is meant to to denote here because this is not a this is not a sort of religious uh this is not a sort of religious record right uh it's explicitly critical of god money um and money god and uh, uh god money dad and dad god yeah, money yeah. <laughs> well i mean it's is it not a religious record? It's, it's concerned with religion,
1: right? Um, I think that religion might be the, the thing that Trent Reznor is angry at, that he develops the least... Uh, fully on this but it's definitely floating around right so not just uh sin comes up in these uh these lyrics but also stale incense right Mm -hmm. and uh and and purity and for that matter uh kisses are you know show up in in like the the symbology of christianity at least effigies uh defacing of effigies yada 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 right um there's there's lots of stuff in there um often i got the feeling that Trent Reznor is one of these people who is an atheist who's pissed off that God doesn't exist, you know, uh, rather than being kind of smug about it the way that, uh, that the, the new atheists would generally have you be. Sure. Um, so I think that part of it may, may have to do with a sense that um, he has been taught through whatever his religious upbringing was that he is sinful and despite having dispensed with the religious upbringing can't shake the feeling of his own sinfulness so it might be sort of like he's he's complaining to religion personified religion about the hang-ups that they have zapped him with
0: Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's you sort of is it not? Right. It's it's um it's that old kind of deconstructive move. It it is a religious rec- record because it accepts the terms of the debate that that religion supplies, right? And that like it can't it can't be uh it's always already religious. It can't be unreligious. Um uh, because you know, once you sort of once you once you accept sin, once you accept the rubric of sin and sinfulness, uh, you've already kind of accepted the premises on um, on on which that is on which that is built. There, there is a kind of infantile, like there's a sort of infantile or very vulnerable aspect to it in the way that you describe it. That like, wouldn't it be nice if there were a god, right? Like, uh, you know, there's not, and you know, those who purport to serve God. On Earth are uh, stale incest old sweat and lies 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 which is um a, a quote from a short story by clive barker so the geniuses uh, uh the geniuses at rap genius inform me um but it would be uh it would be nice if it were uh if it were true right hmm. yeah, yeah yeah that's interesting that it's clive barker i mean <laughs> not
1: um not surprising, I suppose, but it is interesting, um, but yeah, I mean, and like there's there's a lot of that right if you uh, If you go around the nine inch nails catalog there's a lot of religious imagery which is often like um, twisted in a way that it becomes a complaint right uh, about um, about the sinful nature of the flesh and about the sort of the uh the shame that attaches to that sinful nature or something like that
0: yeah, i mean it's you know that and and that like it right if there is no god there is no sin right and it's not like he's he sort of outlines a more broadly humanistic uh program of moral excellence right it's uh it's that like there is no god and by the way god doesn't like me you know
1: <laughs> yes yes
0: <laughs> god is dead also he sucks <laughs> Uh, I think on that cheery note, we might leave the conversation there. Jordan, thanks very much for for joining to talk about Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails and Pretty Hate Machine.
1: And I feel like we just got started, but it's been an hour. I could go on for a lot more.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I just, I, as I said at the beginning, I just want to say I'm sorry that uh, 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 that you dragged me down into it because because
1: I was up above it. <laughs>
0: Um, thanks also to you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to talk about Pretty Hate Machine, probably the best place to do it is in the show notes on this episode. Head to Overthinking It uh, and do uh, do what you always do: click on the uh, the episode title where you see the podcast near the top of the page. Click on uh, show notes there, and uh, you will find the comments section. We're also available on Twitter at TFT Podcast and on Facebook at Theory for Turntables. Please follow, like, uh, like us, like us, like us on the social media. Um. <laughs> this is another
1: very like reznor worthy emotion. That's <laughs> <laughs> a uh, yeah yeah right. I think the song would be called Follow Me. Right? Yeah yeah yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the difference is that back when I was rocking this out, we had no social media, so people had to like me for real if they were going <laughs> to like me. <laughs> it was a much bigger ask. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, we will see you on those platforms and and back here next week with more theory for turntables. Until then. Keep it real.
1: Real gloomy.